0: that for a slice of fried gold.
1: Yeah, boy!
0: Have you checked children? Come
1: oh, one of us. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. You're gonna need
0: a finger potion I'd buy that for a dollar. There's no more room in hell. The dead will walk here. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. <laughs> it is weird, like somebody's reaching up and grabbing your chest, it's and/or n- it giving is you a beach. It's weird nice. out, giving you weirdo. a beach. <laughs> what a way to start an episode! <laughs> well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. This is a podcast devoted to exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am but one of your humble hosts, Gary Horn. I'm, a, I'm I'm a butt I'm a butt
1: uh, guest. What the hell are you talking about right now? You said <laughs> you're but one. I'm I'm a I'm oh I'm a but God. one too. And
2: that is why we refer to him as writer comedian. Todd Davis, oh, God. special guest yeah. for this episode. Welcome, I believe out, maybe Todd.
0: Maybe that's why we're the only ones who <laughs> refer to.
2: <it. laughs> yeah, and I'm, I am your other co-host, Justin Bishop. You can't see it, but Justin always puts air quotes around writer, comedian. Every time, uh, welcome to week f- uh, four of our. I need. I start need to start putting show numbers on these because i keep forgetting how many of these we're doing we're not even halfway through this series guys Uh, we are on episode four of our exploration of the careers of george romero and tom savini specifically the films that they collaborated on which is a lot they did a lot together which is why we're doing this it's a lot of fun so this is week four you guys happy to be here you guys don't look very happy to be here
1: no i'm very i'm very happy to be here todd
2: you're todd you're first of all it's you're wearing a hoodie
0: yeah, I'm and comfy. It is,
2: it's, it's comfy it is, cozy. It is 90 degrees outside. I, you will notice. It feels I am chilly not, in I, the room I'm in. I'm, I'm not outside. <laughs> You're wearing <laughs> but, a hoodie over your head with your headphones over the hoodie.
0: I have a... Uh, it's like 75. I just looked this up. I was exaggerating, Gary. I'm, too rocking, old I'm old. rocking
1: some bed head. So exaggerating yeah, is so, like
0: going up by two or three degrees. You just said 90. It's 75. That is a huge jump. This is irrelevant. This my is irrelevant. imagination takes me to a whole other place. This is you... irrelevant. <laughs> the point is
2: that it's too warm for Todd to be wearing a hoodie. That's my point.
1: Uh, well, if it helps, I'm not wearing a
2: t-shirt underneath it. Or so pants it's... or underwear. He is He is. <laughs>
0: poo-bearing it.
1: Yeah. Listen, there's no better way to podcast.
0: This is calling. Uh,
1: I'm gonna start calling it my podcast, where because that's <laughs> hands on the pud the whole time. Uh,
0: the welcome I'm to the podcast, everybody. Oh. <laughs> We're we'll gonna wow. be talking about effects and pulling on my pud. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man! So let's get into it, guys. So we we touched on this a little bit last week, but one of Savini's most famous like. Gore effects, one of the most famous gags from Dawn of the Dead, which we talked about last week, is the death of what is referred to as the screwdriver zombie. All the zombies in that movie have
0: names based on what's killing them, etc. Do you think the screwdriver zombie died, like became a zombie because of the screwdriver? Or was that just like part of the way through somebody stabbed the zombie with a screwdriver?
2: Well no, he gets stabbed in the head as a zombie with a screwdriver. Oh, that's right. That's right. We talked about this last week, right? We We talked about it because that was one of the the gags that Savini had to improvise on set because they it was a continuity issue and they had to figure it out. The first guy they tried it
0: with like completely failed. So go back to last week if you want to hear more about that story. (laughs) I'm thirsty for a screwdriver.
1: Oh my god, Todd.
2: Writer-comedian Todd Davis, everyone. Thank you.
1: Available for parties and bar
2: mitzvahs and corporate (laughs) events.
0: Not kids' parties. He's not allowed anymore. No, No. he was
1: banned.
2: Because of the podcast. So uh, we we talked about this during Dawn of the Dead, that a lot of the zombies and a lot of the cast members in general were played by friends of the crew, friends of George Romero's, and the same was the case with the guy who played the screwdriver zombie. It's a friend of theirs who was on set, uh, another Filmmaker from Pittsburgh and another graduate of Carnegie Mellon University by the name of john Harrison. so Harrison in nineteen seventy three a few years prior to this, uh, he and his friends Dusty Nelson and Pasquale Buba, they formed a production company not unlike Romero's called the late uh, Romero's company The Latent Image called The Image Works. It's a very similar concept where they were basically doing industrial films, commercials, shooting video for the local uh, public, uh, public access channel. They, they worked on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, just like George Romero did. Uh, so they worked together for a few years, and this partnership eventually led to them doing a feature film, and that's the film that we're going to be talking about today. Originally supposed to be released, I should say, I guess, in 1979, a movie called Effects. <laughs>
0: Okay, let's see a movie. Nobody is gonna believe a spurt of blood. They'll believe anything we show them. She's pretty good with that razor, huh? You gotta put her in the movie. Well, I still don't know what to do when he comes in. No, no, you're fine. You're stoned, you're confused.
1: Besides, everything's happening too fast for you to even be scared. It's trash.
2: Killing somebody
0: on, on film?
2: It's sick. Not FX. Nope.
0: No, tried Not, that no. one already. No, different movie. Yeah, um, their company used to be called Bududa. Badadu. Badadu? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think <it> was <laughs> Yes, uh, but correct. you can see it on the clapboard in the kitchen, like when it's when it's there. It says. Yeah, yeah. You there. can.
2: Uh, there are clips from some of there on the uh, the Blu-ray of effects that was released by Agfa there are a couple of their short films on it and they uh and they are copyright budadu or babadu or babaduk or, or whatever it's called uh they wisely changed it to the image works later on which is
0: probably a good move on their part yeah. most of hollywood would be having that exact same conversation
2: yes i mean cuz we can't remember it right now so why why will anyone else re- remember your gibberish name like psychotronic yeah <laughs> Garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so while they, these guys are shooting commercials, industrials, documentaries, etc., they also started working on these these short films, like the ones I mentioned that are on that Blu-ray. And they're some of these short films are they were just kind of doing them for fun, but some of them are pretty bizarre. The ones that are on that Agfa Blu-ray are are strange, and to the point where you can see these guys working in horror. You know, they're not specifically horror films, but they definitely have. These guys had horror movie sensibilities, right? And it was during this time that they met George Romero. So Romero loved their short film, so he kind of asked them to start working with him. And this was during this stint that we talked about at the beginning of our Martin episode, where Romero was taking a break from feature filmmaking. Uh, He was working on sports documentaries et cetera, like the juice on the loose and things like that. So he asked the Image Work guys to start helping him out with some of these gigs. So he would send them out on the road to film for these sports documentaries. Sometimes he'd go with them, sometimes not. But it was sort of a partnership between Romero and the ImageWorks. And they, they developed a, a working relationship, but they also developed a friendship. So when it came time for Romero to start, when he, he decided he wanted to make another feature film, he had this idea for Martin, he asked them to come along and work with it on it we discussed in the martin episode if you haven't listened to that it's two episodes back uh the creation of that film is pretty interesting because it's very sort of lo-fi low budge almost guerrilla filmmaking which is something we're kind of going to talk about in this episode too but one thing we mentioned as part of that low budget filmmaking is that a lot of the film is set in a single house and that was the house of a crew member a guy who worked on martin and that crew member was Pasquale Buba, uh, or Pat Buba, as, as his friends refer to him as, which I'm probably going to refer to him as because it's a lot easier to say. <laughs> uh, so, we mentioned how the cast and crew, uh, all, several of them lived in that house and they would all hang out in that house. And the mother of this crew member would feed them like family style Italian food, you know, like your typical Italian grandmother type feeding everyone. And that was Pat Buba's mother. His yes. and his uh his brother Tony also worked on Martin. He was the the sound engineer for that film.
1: Yeah, they uh they said that uh the grandmother was uh you know talking with her hands and uh putting O at the end of every uh the end of every sentence mm-hmm. just the typical
0: Italian typical Italian grandmother. Right or yeah, comedian yeah. Tante, <laughs> Part <laughs> of what's fun about this book, is all these book, guys are gonna be tied to Romero for forever. So, yeah yeah uh, yeah. very yeah, so. true i mean
2: that's that's kind of what's interesting about this episode and the reason we wanted to do it even though romero didn't really have anything to do with the making of this movie all of these guys have connections to romero and they all met on or they didn't meet but they all worked with romero on the set of martin the only one of them that actually has any kind of credit is pat buba he's credited as drug dealer number two uh, which i assume is in the scene where martin burst into that what looks like a just a den of people shooting up and shit, you know, and the cops burst in that scene. I assume it's that scene, but he was drug dealer number two. His brother Tony was drug dealer number one. they both get shot, I believe in the film. but all of these guys were on the set at one time or another, all kind of learning from Romero. he was a, about a, probably about a decade older than them, so they they kind of looked up to him as this like Pittsburgh filmmaker who sort of made it big because by I mean, he hadn't made it big like he would with dawn of the dead because he hadn't filmed that yet but he created night of the living dead and kind of put pittsburgh on the map as a place where movies could be made well as you
1: start to you know if anybody's you know for whatever reason like discovered this show um and it's maybe maybe you're just starting your love for film if you have a favorite film like look into that director and their career odds are you're going to see a lot of this same type of relationships where they worked with some folks early on and those folks hung around for five ten you know 20 years or more yes yeah, it's, it's always it's always kind of see it's always fun to see like even as big and as you know uh corporate as those movies can get at the end of the day it's still a lot of friends getting together to make these things just yeah. like just like our show
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's one thing that's so fun about doing the research on this show, for me, looking into the making of these films, because you start, even when you're not looking for connections, you start finding connections, you start finding ways that these guys are connected to, you know, a movie we might talk about, you know, six months from now or two years from now, there are going to be connections between episodes that we did a long time ago. And, you know, it's it's really interesting and really fun and it really, you know, the, the filmmaking world is huge, but they there are these kind of small family units a lot of times. And and what Romero was doing in Pittsburgh was a even smaller version of that because it is such a tight knit community. It kind of reminds me of the um what they they refer to as the Michigan Mafia, I think is what they call it, which is Sam Raimi and yeah, Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers and and Bruce Campbell all those guys who were making movies together when they were young and of course I
1: forgot forgot they had that moniker yeah
2: yeah I mean a lot of people don't realize that Sam Raimi this guy responsible for movies like Darkman and The Evil Dead and Army of Darkness is also very closely connected to the Coen brothers uh, who Mm. make completely different kind of movies but the Coen brothers wrote an early movie for Sam Raimi and they worked together for years and years and it's, it's just kind of, it's really fun seeing
0: like the family tree aspect mm. of all of this. Mm-hmm. If, if this movie is any indication of what the behind the scenes is actually like for these, then that scene in Martin where, uh, you know, Boba's playing drug dealer number two, that wasn't actually like directed. That was just the behind the scenes.
2: They just, yeah, everyone's just doing <laughs> <Yeah>. coke. <laughs>
0: right, exactly. Hey, how about you cool off my nose? Yeah, let me film it.
2: so these guys are working on martin and they get kind of inspired to do their own feature-length film so another friend of the crew a guy named william h mooney so william mooney had written a a novel called snuff and dusty nelson kind of he, he felt that it would make a kind of the perfect scenario for a horror film so he went about writing a script based on this novel now the novel and the subsequent subsequent screenplay were inspired by a a kind of a fairly recent urban legend which is the snuff film now for listeners who may not know the term a snuff film is essentially a movie that allegedly shows an actual murder or sometimes an actual suicide usually circulated for profit
0: or as todd calls them
2: home movies but that's a a different podcast altogether so the first known use of the term (laughs) snuff movie is in a 1971 book by ed sanders called the family so it's a great title by the way
0: yeah Um, holy shit wait that wasn't it it
2: wasn't just the family i'm not done there's a subtitle to this oh the family the story of charles manson's dune buggy attack battalion Uh, (laughs) and in that book the author Ed Sanders, alleges that the Manson family made snuff movies, or at least made a snuff movie. So the concept of the snuff movie, though, if not the name, necessarily, goes back much further than that, pretty much to the beginning of cinema. There was always sort of the urban legend that there are these movies being circulated where people are getting killed on film. The concept of the snuff film being made for profit and being distributed uh, with those with, let's say, severely fucked up tastes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That kind of began with a 1976 movie called Snuff. So Snuff was a low-budget exploitation horror movie directed by Michael and Roberta Finley. So that movie, it was originally called Slaughter. It was just a kind of low-budget, forgettable horror movie. But then a distributor by the name of Alan Shackleton uh, came along. He was an exploitation movie. Uh, distributor, and like many, he he sensationalized his film. So he comes along, he buys the film, and he had read about the, the the story of like these snuff films being imported from South America, and he decided to kind of exploit that idea by giving the movie a new title. He retitled it Snuff, and he had the director shoot a new ending where an actress, a, a woman who was not a character in the movie, but an actress appears to be murdered on a film set. Wow. Yeah. So, and and he, this Shackleton guy was a hell of a character. He was the kind of guy who, what what he did for this movie is he marketed it as if it were an actual snuff film. Like he led people to believe this is, you know, kind of pre Blair Witch, I guess, where, I mean, obviously this is two decades prior to Blair Witch and he is marketing this film as if it's an actual snuff movie, as if you go see this movie and you're going to see somebody die on the screen And he even hired protesters. He paid people to pick it and protest the movie outside of theaters to drum up publicity. And And the movie opened to, like, lines around the block. It was this big cultural thing. That's awesome. Uh, Very brief. But it also gave birth to, like, a a widespread urban legend of these snuff movies actually existing. Wow.
1: Yeah. yeah, That is, you know, I know we've joked about tangents here, but if I could... Like for for just a second, I think it speaks to the nature of man, of like what we are willing to spend our hard-earned money to actually witness, as opposed to you know if somebody was just like, hey, I've made this kids' movie and it's educational and da 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 da, nobody gives a shit. Yeah. But if you're like, hey, wanna watch somebody get brutally murdered? Yeah, I mean that's real, what like, um yeah,
2: you know, Faces of Death was oh successful yeah for that very reason, and most of that was fake. But so that anyway, that was just a little side note on what inspired this novel and the ultimate screenplay was the idea. Because you do see a video in this movie, which we'll I'm sure talk about in a minute, that is purportedly one of those snuff movies. So, with a story to be ready to be filmed, it was time to raise some cash. Now this was pre-credit card, so they couldn't go the Kevin Smith route and just like max out all their credit cards to pay for the movie like he did. <laughs> they couldn't do that. So they basically had to go door to door asking friends and family for money to finance the film, or more accurately, they started selling them shares of the film for $1,000 a piece. Oh, wow. And they did, they did it. They raised money. They didn't raise a lot of money, but they raised about $55,000, which is you know a very small budget for a movie, but it was enough to get a movie
0: made. Yeah. So now with, you know. The, They've got like, nice guys. friends and family. Like, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. everybody that does this, it's just, I don't know. I feel like I could go to my dad and be like, hey, if you give me $1,000, you could have a part in this movie. Well, it's, it's more about you like. you could go fuck yourself. <laughs> it's more <laughs> about like, I mean, if, if they're selling
2: shares and it's like, hey, you are you own one, in this case, one fifty fifth of this movie. So this movie goes on to make a million dollars. You've made a little bit of cash back, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of how it works. That, that did not happen with this movie.
0: <laughs> so, uh,
2: But they, okay, so it's time to get a cast together. So both Joe Pilato and Susan Shapik, you guys probably recognize Joe Pilato if you're familiar with some later Romero movies, specifically the one we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks. But these guys, they're primarily stage actors. Joe Pilato was employed by the Pittsburgh City Theater. He essentially worked for the city government, but putting on plays at the city theater and chapek was a more recent pittsburgh transplant who actually founded and helped to run a small theater with some friends there in pittsburgh as well so there's they're stage actors they're not necessarily your typical exploitation movie actors you know Uh, they were skilled actors i mean chapek was a shakespearean like trained actress like she's she had a lot of experience coming into this movie, which makes the scene where she's like quoting Shakespeare, I think, and she's doing a sonnet into the mirror. gives that a little bit more
0: meaning, you know, because that
2: was her background.
0: Yeah, reading a little bit about Pilato too, like he was a transplant out of Boston, I think, um, originally, and uh, had been working in theater there and moved to Pittsburgh because of the scene or something. Uh, I think he was living or something where now it's like an Andy Warhol museum or something i was reading some interviews oh, wow. it's kind of interesting about that
2: wow and i think they're i think the performances especially the their two performances in this movie for a movie like this which is a very low budget you know uh very cheap horror movie exploitation movie the performances by the two what I, what i would consider the two leads of of Joe Pilato and and Chapek are really good because there, there's a naturalism to them that is very different from what you normally get in these types of movies, which is sort of bad or over-the-top acting, you know, or, or just plain, you know, crummy acting. But I think they're really good, especially those two. I mean, there, there are other good performances in the film, but I think the, those two especially are, are very good in this. And I think that probably is due to their experience on stage. But I think it adds a lot to the film because uh, this movie could have... they most movies like this would very well have employed less experienced actors in these roles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And especially Pilato, because if you, if you like most people like, like me, if you're mostly familiar with him from day of the dead, he gives a very different performance here. He is very over the top in day of the dead in in a great way, but he he plays a very kind of natural very down to earth it's a very down to earth performance here i think yeah i i
1: I think um i think this is in terms of just the acting alone i think this is actually head and shoulders above martin i I would not
2: disagree with that yeah i think they do a great job and then john harrison so john harrison we mentioned earlier is one of the guys from the image works uh who founded that well he he got cast in the film as lacey bickle the director the essentially the antagonist of the film mostly so the production could save some some money uh dusty nelson was like hey do you want to do this do you want to act in this role and they're like he was like i hadn't really thought about it but yeah i guess i can and that'll save us from having to hire another actor <laughs> so that's what they did and and he had a background in acting he had a theatrical background as well although his primary focus at the time was in music he was a composer. He actually composed the score for this film, but he was in a band where he like traveled to Japan and traveled all over the world. Like he was uh, a somewhat successful musician prior to this. Nice. And Harrison was directed by Dusty Nelson to kind of play it very monotone. And I think that that is honestly, I think that's a sort of brilliant piece of direction because it makes him come across. It makes Lacey come across as, Sort of an emotionless sociopath, like he is very cold. Uh, it, it, he feels like right. He feels like he could be right at home in like a Cronenberg movie to me. Honestly, he's definitely my
0: favorite part of this movie. Yeah, it's
2: very chilling. It's a very chilling performance. He's really good. I think it's kind of yeah. weird that he didn't do more acting. But
1: yeah, I, I you know, in seeing him in a couple of scenes where he's just kind of sitting there in a room and there's other people, but he's so he's so relaxed and just
2: quiet yeah even when propositioning a woman for sex
1: yeah it it, it, to (laughs) to me it just kind of it it gave his character like a sense of power and importance that kind of he certainly is self-important right he he feels
2: he feels that he's important
1: yeah but it all that to say like it made his character more menacing i feel like
2: yeah i i absolutely agree and so do you what what do you think's the more awkward um sex proposal this or the one from martin where where he just says where and Bickle says lacey Bickle says, Hey, you want to have sex <laughs> and then or, or martin who says you just you just want me here for the sex which do you She's think is more
0: awkward i well no like i feel like I, at I least mean, with but, martin he's he's more uh innocent sounding yeah. about it and Lacey always just sounds like, I don't care about you, but I will, I will do you if that makes, <laughs> it will probably help us both out. <laughs> he hey,
1: should. There should have just
0: been like a big sigh at the beginning of it. It's just like,
1: so uh, you want to have sex or whatever? <laughs> uh, like, I, he's, I, like
2: He's bored with humanity. <laughs> I also, I do think that John Harrison's score for the movie is actually really good too. It's oh. pretty minimal because he like, they couldn't, Hire like an orchestra. Uh, he plays a piano a lot of times in it. And he also hired, uh, he had a couple of friends that come came in like local musicians that helped out with the score. One guy was playing a flute and makes these like interesting flute noises. But uh, at the end in that chase scene where uh, Joe Pilato's running through the woods, there's this electronic drum machine sound as the main score and it's really cool, I think. I think it's a really cool score. Basically like Harrison and Nelson, they, they got a friend to come in who had I made mean, a drum machine in 1978 was like pretty, pretty new technology, but they had a friend who had one and they would just kind of direct him like, hey, do something like wild and crazy here. And he would just start like hitting, you know, it's, it's a really bizarre score at the end, but I think it ratchets up the tension uh, a good bit. I think it, it adds a lot to those scenes.
1: Yeah, because like, I it's think it's so, very so- frantic. Yeah, I think subconsciously you kind of equate it to uh, Dom's uh, heartbeat. And then, you know, because you're siding with him,
2: yeah. you, you kind of sympathize and then you yourself start to feel that anxiety. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. If there's one performance in the film that goes a little bit broad, though, it's Mr. Tom Savini. We love Mr. Tom Savini, but that's his thing. He doesn't do like subtle. He doesn't do nuanced necessarily. That's not what you hire Tom Savini for. You hire Tom Savini to essentially play Tom Savini on screen. Uh, His performance in Martin is honestly probably the most like downplayed performance of his career. Uh, But I I mean, I think it works in this. I mean, he's supposed to be coked up like the entire movie, right? So I think his performance works really well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's really-
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. For that role, yeah, works. Tom Savini's just being Tom Savini in this role. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, I don't know how
2: much cocaine Tom Savini does. I know he smokes a lot of pot, but he talks about that pretty pretty openly. But uh, Of course, and Tom Savini was much like John Harrison as an actor-composer slash producer, actually. Tom Savini is also pulling double duty in this. He's doing not only on screen, but he's doing what he's probably most famous for, which is He's doing the makeup effects. He's doing the gore effects, and there aren't a lot of gore effects in this movie. But the ones that there are that are there are, you know, typically good. Like I mean, like what we expect from Savini, they're very good for a movie with a budget like this. Like they look pretty great, and I love that they play into the meta narrative of the film because Joe Pilato's character is all is a cameraman slash stunt guy slash uh, effects guy, which is kind of what all the filmmakers making this movie are. They're all They've all got different hats that they wear at different times.
0: Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. It, they're they're kind of lucky into the people they end up with. That, that it's kind of a neat crew to have all together at once. Like even Harris, I mean, he was like a touring musician, you know, like he was. Yeah, you know, I
2: talked about that.
0: Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> just saying. He's, whatever.
2: Yeah, no, you're right though. I mean, they they've got a there's a lot of talent on set, and guys who would go on to do even more after this. Obviously Savini, but even some of the other guys did quite a lot of work after this. So one of the budget, or one of the limits of such a low budget, uh, like this film, is that in 1978 they're shooting on film. That's a that's a huge expense. It's very expensive. And in fact, the filmmakers estimated it in the commentary for this film when they, they talk about. They said the film, the cost of the film itself, like the literal reels, is probably about half of their budget just on film. It's incredible. Wow. But that's what, one thing that people don't understand about movies like this is that film is incredibly expensive, and they're shooting on 16 millimeter. They're not yeah. shooting on 35 millimeter, which is even more expensive. They're shooting on 16 millimeter with the intention of blowing that up to 35 millimeter later. That, that's one reason the film is as grainy as it is, is because it gets blown up to twice its size. Another reason that it's so grainy is because um, they didn't have a lot of lights so a lot, of, so they're shooting with available light a lot of times, and a lot when you don't have a lot of light, it will often come across as grainy. I think they had three lights on set, like that. That was it. That's all that they they could afford, and some of those lights appear in the movie as the lights uh, yeah. as the lights that the crew is using. They had two cameras. They get they get screen time. Yeah, they had two cameras, and one of those is also the camera that Joe Pilato's character uses on screen. So, like. They're doing everything they can to be, you know, kind of clever and make their, stretch their budget as far as they can. But it also meant they had to be very, very careful about what they shot, about which shots they were getting. They didn't, they weren't able to do a lot of takes. They weren't able to, to do a lot of redos on scenes. So because every time they shot, you know, 10 minutes of film, it's costing them a lot of money. So the performers had to really be on their toes as a result. They didn't have a lot of like, oh, hey, Dusty, can I do that again? I didn't really like that take. Like They had to do it pretty much right every single time. They very rarely were able to get a second take.
1: Well, I mean, that and that kind of goes back to, you know, watching watching film. And if you dive into film history, you see where it was kind of like, they had this stage play and then someone set up a camera and then they you know, decided to get different angles and all this other stuff. And then, well, we're shooting this film on location, but we got theater actors. And like, as that progresses, you see it transition more to nowadays, there's actually different schools, there's different methods of teaching stage acting versus film
2: acting. Well, sure, and, because in, in stage acting, you have to be a little, not necessarily broader, but you do have to project in a way that you don't on film because you've got a camera right in your face, you know? Yeah, exactly. So one of the, one kind of major setback that they had during production on this involved the actual film as well. So the lab that was processing the film ruined an entire reel of film. So, not, a, I mean, it was it was just a dumb accident. Basically what happened is, the reels, the, the film's being processed and it jumps off the, it jumps off the wheel that it's on and, and it ends up splitting the film, the actual film itself, down the middle. So it's completely unsalable. Oh, shit. Which forced them to have to re-shoot those scenes and use more film. Well, to add insult to injury, when the lab told them that this had happened, they told them that they had actually you know, ruined a reel of their film, they gave them the wrong reel number. So, when the crew went back to reshoot those scenes, they reshot the wrong stuff.
1: Oh, <laughs> God damn it. It's funny uh,
2: listening to like the commentary where they talk with the filmmakers talk about that now and they're they kind of laugh about it. But I, you know, at the time that they were filming this, like they were pissed. They I'm were bad. like,
1: Yeah,
2: because that's like that's <laughs> expensive, man. I'm sure the lab gave them some kind of. Hopefully, some got a discount coupon. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was, I was just, I was just thinking. I was like, I, I you know, from a producing standpoint, you got to be like, all right, let's make, let's get them to pay for something.
2: Yeah, the thing, and they didn't have. They're such a small crew that they didn't have like a script supervisor to double check this kind of stuff. Right. So normally, on like a higher production movie, you've got like seven or eight people who would have double checked that before they actually shot. But they didn't have that many people on on the crew, so they didn't have anyone to do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, they, they had to get creative with their use of props and costumes. Like, they're using basically their own clothes and their own props, everything. They didn't buy hardly anything for this movie because, again, couldn't afford it. Didn't have the time or the money to, to put into that kind of stuff. But I, I think that it's really interesting that because these meta elements kind of permeate the, the entire film, the production and the film itself, with real life often mirroring art, hopefully without, you know, anyone getting murdered in Correct. real life. So, but this is a small crew living together in this tiny house, making a horror movie about a small crew living together in a tiny house, making a horror movie. Like it's really fun. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things about this movie, as I started researching how it got made is just how much it parallels the making of night of the living dead. Because
1: I actually had that thought as
2: I was watching it, I was just kind
1: of like, this could have easily been about night of the living dead.
2: Yeah. Cause it's, You've got a crew, a small crew of filmmakers from Pittsburgh who had been making industrial films and commercials. They're ready to break out into feature filmmaking, so they decide the best move, the most financially stable thing to make, is a low-budget horror movie. They raise a little bit of money from investors, mostly people they know. The crew moves into... Many of the crew members live in a small secluded farmhouse where they're also filming on the outskirts of Pittsburgh. And they hire local Pittsburgh actors. They don't go to New York or L.A. to get actors. They hire local guys. Members of the crew all perform multiple roles. You've got Dusty Nelson, writer, director, cameraman. He shot most of the film. He didn't shoot everything, but he shot probably 90% of it himself. Uh, Pat Buba, producer, editor, sound engineer. John Harrison, actor, executive producer, composer. Tom Savini, special special makeup effects, actor. Like everyone's got multiple hats, just like they did on Night of the Living Dead where you had – you know, an actor who was also a producer, etc. You know, a, a Marilyn Eastman who was an actor slash makeup effects. Uh, it, the parallels are really interesting to me, and I know that happens a lot on small budget movies. I know it probably, you know, we referenced Evil Dead earlier. I'm sure it happened a lot on that as well. But uh, I think it's really fun that this movie, who has such strong connections to Romero, was made in a very similar way from his breakout.
1: movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it seems like that's kind of the formula for. I mean, I know these guys weren't first time filmmakers, but for a lot of first time and even like sophomore efforts, it's kind of like, hey, you're doing three things on this set or more. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the same folks, a lot of locals. Um, so, yeah.
2: So another parallel with Night of the Living Dead is that the big truck explosion at the end of this movie. It's uh, all once again, courtesy of Regis Cervinsky and his partner, Tony Panatella, the same two guys who rigged the truck on night. If you look in the credits for this movie, they're literally, their credit is just, it just says explosion and has their names next to it. That was their, that was their credit. (laughs) Not demolitions experts or anything, just explosion. So, you know, it's, like I said, it's a very like small, very tight knit community of filmmakers there.
1: Oh yeah. Well, there's worse things to be credited as.
2: So I guess this is time Gary, we discussed this last week, but we have to discuss whether we think Todd liked this movie or not. The way this conversation has gone so far, I've, I'm questioning what, what was originally my assessment was that Todd would not like this movie. But he hasn't, he hasn't been too down on it yet. So I'm trying, to figure, I'm trying to figure out what we think here, Gary. What do you think? Do you think Todd liked this movie? Because last week I said Todd was not going to like this movie. That was my initial thought.
0: Um, I also thought Todd wouldn't like this movie, but right now it sounds like he liked it a lot more than me. So. Uh,
2: All right, Todd, where do you, where do you fall? Todd? Todd does not like this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry
1: guys. (laughs) (laughs) If, if, If I can offer this up, I feel about it. I feel about it the same way I feel about Martin. I feel like it's, it's full of potential it i i get where they were going but in for for a fairly for what is a fairly short movie i found myself and i don't normally do this at all checking to see how much time was left i did that four times and that's not a good sign um i feel like the script was vague um like i said the acting is better and that's great the special effects are on par you know for something uh from Savini in the 70s that's you know that's all good um but just overall i it just it took too long to get going and i'm you know by the time it by the time stuff really
2: ramped up it was almost over and i was like well well, and I think that like, the thing is when we're talking about movies like this, these little exploitation movies, these low budget exploitation movies or horror movies, which we'll be talking about regularly, not every week, but these are the types of movies that will come up regularly on this podcast because they're important to the genre. You have to judge them a little bit differently than you would like a major blockbuster or even a, a higher budgeted horror movie because... You have to kind of, and it's not to say you, they necessarily get a pass, but there's a, there's a different level of, of what, for me, what makes me appreciate a movie like this. And it's not necessarily that it's perfect, because part of the charm of a movie like this, these, these little low-budget movies, is that they're a little rough around the edges, that they're not perfect, but they're made, with, they're made by people who are passionate. And I think with a, with a movie like this, you can see that passion on screen, even if the final result is not perfect by any means. Uh, and that that's kind of what makes movies like this special. And there are, now there are some exploitation movies that fall into that category that are unwatchable. And this movie is not. This movie is pretty fascinating. Even if there are times where the, it is paced poorly. And it's not always paced poorly. I just think, like you said, it does. It does, there are scenes where it, it becomes a hangout movie where, but I like those scenes where they're hanging out. Like, I think those are fun. I think the scene where Joe Pilato is hanging out with the crew and they're doing Coke. Like, I think that's a
0: really fun scene. Yeah. Uh, I think the thing is though, is like, you're talking, I mean, all those things you're saying are, are true. And I mean, I think it's possible that you can appreciate that this movie exists. I can appreciate a lot of people's desire to make music. That doesn't mean they make good music or should be rock stars you know, and I'm not saying that like Tom Savini shouldn't be a rock star. I'm just saying.
2: Tom Savini like, is a rock star.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm not saying he shouldn't be. I'm just saying like, if you're asking Todd, if he likes this movie, I think it's perfectly acceptable for him not to, because sure, I mean, you're, depending you're on, to like
2: or not like anything.
0: Yeah, like I think he can appreciate that it exists. I think I appreciate that this movie exists. And I think, yeah. but I literally think that the only reason that I can appreciate it exists is that it's like, knowing this background and the connection it has to George Romero's legacy and and these this group of people, um, I, I don't think that this movie is I think it's interesting to super fans of the genre. I don't think it'll be that interesting to anybody else.
1: And and let me let me just add for a second that and I I pointed out a couple of good points, but to just reiterate, I do think there are some really great parts of this movie. And like Justin said, um, it does become a hangout movie in some parts. And I know that this is—it it is still a short movie, but I think for this concept and the things that they had to work with, I think in editing, if they had tightened it down to a, a short film, but like a 40 minute short film, I think this would have been awesome. Really. Well, I, I think some like,
0: stuff's really, really super effective in this movie. There are scenes th- that really a, work. I mean, It's an but, incredibly meta movie. And yeah, it's very, 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 very ahead of its time in that way. Because I, this I is think a, the idea is good. It just, I, I don't think the execution works.
2: Because it's, it's about a group of people who, it's made by a group of people who are basically living the life that they're depicting on screen. Right. And, and it's meta in ways that don't necessarily jump out at you immediately until the end of the film like you've got joe Pilato, the, the the one of the biggest scenes in the movie that i think reads a lot into the meaning of the film or, or what they're trying to say is that scene where joe Pilato and the other crew members are doing coke and hanging out they're talking about movies and he says that like that you should care about the people that, you know, he's trying to argue that you should care about the people. If you're going to kill them, you need to get to know them and care about them so that you care if they die. And the other guys are kind of like, nah, people just want to see like heads getting lobbed off. But that very scene is you getting to know his character. They're getting you to care about Joe Pilato's character because he is a very sympathetic character. Like he's a very likable character.
0: And He, he is the only one that I, I think you could argue that for because what I was about to say. He's is really that the only that one that you're discussion. supposed to like you don't get either of those things too much like plot, no, but, fine with it's like you're like okay i get he's the only person in this whole, whole entire movie that acts decent at well, any point. yeah i mean he's the only one you're That's the only to, reason you care for him not because you care about him you're just like oh, he seems like an all right guy uh, he's for a for blue him.
2: collar guy you know living paycheck to paycheck and he got duped into doing this movie where he did not know that he was going to be the the main subject essentially uh, okay. But but it's I, I do think that Dusty Nelson does a pretty admirable job of directing, considering the budget that he had. It's a shame that I think he didn't go on to do bigger budget horror movies because I think he really could have stretched his skills later on. But I do think he does a good job of building suspense when it's needed. You know, like that, I think the the chase scene is, which is another thing that gets referenced in the Coke scene, uh, because Joe Pilato's like, like you need a big chase scene at the end that's the one thing your movie is missing. And then they put a big chase scene at the end of this movie and he is the prey. Like, I think yeah. that's really fun. That's a really fun idea. And I think that scene is done really, really well uh, with the music that we were talking about earlier, the way the music works and the way that they shot it in that like wide angle where yeah. it, everything, it just makes everything look really threatening. Like the, the woods look threatening.
0: See, man, yeah. I was into that, but I thought it went on way too long. Like, I lost all sense of suspense. Like, really? in that movie. Yeah, I was just like, I'm not feeling this. Like, at first, when it finally starts going down, you're like, oh, this is kind of out of nowhere. It's, hap- it's Like, I feel like all going into it, you're like, this this is going to happen at some point. And then it does, and it happens. It kind of catches you off guard, like, when it starts. But then it just feels like, I don't know, something about the there, there there, are parts of it that really work, but it feels like it lasts like a half hour. And it's like, it's not, it just after, I don't know, by the time it even gets into the house where he's uh, fighting that guy and stuff, all of it, the way it's done, I'm just kind of like, it's just, it felt pretty uneventful. It, it, I, I just, I, I wasn't into it.
2: I mean, I, I, I got really invested in that because again, I, I really like his character, but I do think... I mean, I don't agree that it goes on too long. It doesn't go on very long. Uh, but I there's something about this movie that... There, I don't know. There's something really charming about the way that it feels. Like, you can almost feel the... You can almost see the seams on the film, you know? And I there's something about that that appeals to me on a low-budget movie like this, a little exploitation movie like this. I like that I can sense it being made. And I also like that you're... see. I feel like the like, scenes where... Like I keep going back to that one scene, but like the the scene where they're doing Coke and they're talking about movies that they like. They're talking about the Omen and the Fury and Night of the Living Dead. Like I feel like those are probably that's probably something that happened on the set of Martin or on the set of Night of the Living Dead, you know, filmmakers hanging out or even on the set of this movie.
1: That's Gary, Gary, you Gary, you realize this is Justin trying to tell us that he's doing Coke. And he's doing a lot of
0: coke. He's <laughs> well, what really I was going to say was that this, you and you your wife all the time talk about like the stuff you liked on Psychotronic, and like I feel like our dichotomy or whatever, like our our coupling here, this is exactly that that thing at play here. Like, yeah, I get that you would like it. uh I I it it feels like only people exactly like you are going to like it. Not not exactly like you, but I mean like people that are invested in who these people are in real life and like just love the idea that they're making a movie. And this is one of the early chances you can see. So you get to see like uh, the trappings and the things they succeeded at, things they might've failed at, that sort of thing. But for a casual audience, especially, um, even, a pe- even horror fans, the movie, I mean there's something to like expectation. I mean, the movie's presented sort of like it's going to be a slasher and it's certainly not that. Um, Oh no. I mean, it's barely a horror movie. It's uh, it has horror elements, but it's not what I would consider like a particularly scary movie, but likely the people that are going to stumble on it are going to be horror movie fans. And I, and I think that like most people it's just my opinion, obviously, but I feel like a lot of people would be disappointed by this movie. I I, I think that, I think the
2: meta narrative of it, like the the way that it keeps kind of, you don't really, it like, it keeps tricking you. Like you, you're watching the movie, then you're watching the movie within the movie, and then you're watching the secret movie that's being made. You know, like it, it goes all over the place. And at first it's very disorienting in a very intentional
0: way, I think. I don't Between, think it ever finds its way back, personally. That's another you know, I, thing about it for me. Like I think by the end of the movie, I was just kind of like, Wow, you really have to work hard for this to make sense. Like that this all played out this way. I mean, it makes sense. It's there's no, it feels real muddled to me. I mean, that's personally, and maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I just didn't get it. That probably has something to do with it. But (laughs) I watched it, and uh, you know, for dumb me, then uh, by the end of it, when they're sitting in the truck that's about to explode, I was like, what the fuck? Really? I was like, you you (laughs) just had to end it. That is literally whatever. You were just like, "Well, that wasn't in the script." Oh no! Boom! They blow up. Well, that's the, that's the director. That's uh, Lacey
2: going. Oh shit! The end. Of, these guys are going to ruin this, and this is my my backup plan. Is that I got to just kill them? You know, she. The thing is, like, Celeste is in on it partially. Every a lot of people on set are on they're in on the fact that Lacey's making a snuff, a secretly making a snuff film, but not everyone knows, and not everyone knows every element of it. Like Celeste knows some elements of it, but she doesn't know everything. She doesn't, like she even doesn't believe that that Dom, Joe Pilato's character is going to truly get hurt because when they start tr- shooting him, she's like, you, you guys said you wouldn't hurt him. So even she's not in on everything. I think the only person that knows everything is maybe Tom Savini and and uh and John Harrison's characters. And I like the way that they introduce Tom Savini, by the way. Like they he just they introduce him in that bar scene, which is another really fun scene, another fun hangout scene that lets you know the characters. But he comes across as just this asshole. And then he shows up on set like the next day, and you kind of at first think maybe he's just Lacey's like Coke dealer or something. But you kind of find out that oh no, he's working on this secret movie that they're filming. Which, by the way, I think that reveal of the uh, the underground like media station, which they filmed at an actual TV station, like something like an hour and a half away from the house they were filming at, uh, it feels like that might have been a direct influence on Cabin in the Woods.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: yeah, I could see that. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah,
1: I was trying to draw some
2: comparisons of
1: like what movies were clearly, or maybe not clearly, but could have potentially been influenced uh, by this the Woods? movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Cabin in, in the Woods. Or at, least sim- or at least similar ideas. A little, little bit of a new nightmare. Um, yeah. To, yeah. A de- to a degree, even Truman Show a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah.
2: But yeah. So uh, going back to the horror element, the one, scene in the film that is very clearly horror that is very clearly creepy and scary is the scene where they're watching the
0: actual snuff film
2: yeah the, this, this the way would be they, the
0: most effective scene in the movie too.
2: it absolutely is it is disturbing It like truly disturbing to watch like there's no score you're just watching it play out and you don't know what's going on and the way it's shot in, like the super grainy black and white the yeah. way that the the guy the hooded figure bumps the camera at one point it kind of goes skewed uh it's re- really well done and i i don't know this for sure but i think that was maybe tom savini because i was
1: i was thinking it was probably he's holding tom a savini. knife
2: the guy yeah. the, the knife that he used to kill the girl you see tom savini with a couple scenes earlier yeah. when when they're around the campfire and and celeste like runs off and he like he has that knife and he's like whittling or something that stabs into the ground to go chase her uh chase her down but it's the exact same knife Uh, which they never allude to in the film, but I thought that was a fun little touch. But that scene is like, it's, it feels almost like, remind me of like the video, the feeling of the video that you see in the ring, Uh, the way it's shot, like very grainy and just like, you can't quite see what's going
0: on, but it's enough to like really fuck with your head. It's definitely (laughs) my favorite part of the movie in, in that, I mean, it's, it's, effective like it's I was there. uncomfortable yeah. watching it like I, yeah. I you, you you could believe you were watching a snuff film like it yeah. was done really really well. really well and, done it was yeah. the way the woman is portrayed or her job acting in the scene and stuff yeah. it just it looks uncomfortable and icky and yeah. like something's really happening to this person it, it, I was definitely that one gave me chills so I, I give it 100 props there it kind of reminded me of uh what to me was
1: the most effective scene in if you guys recall that Nick Cage movie, Eight yeah. Millimeter, uh, where, where he's watching the movie, but the camera's tight on his face. And you can you can see him like even flinching at stuff that's happening. Yeah. And that, like, I mean, I think even some of that's in the trailer for it. And it's, it's a really it's, underrated
0: it's, movie.
2: Yeah, it's
1: very effective. It's very yeah.
0: effective.
2: So effects ended up having its world premiere at the Kings Court Theater on November 9th, 1979. Following that premiere, the film was signed to distribution for, uh, with a company called International Harmony. And the film played a few film festivals, including the Sundance Film Festival, believe it or not. It wasn't called Sundance at the time, it actually changed its name the next year. It was at the time just called the US Film Festival, but it was the same thing. And according to Dusty Nelson on the commentary for this film, uh, Sundance audiences did not enjoy the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, especially the scene, the the scene we were just talking about, the these snuff film that's within the movie. Right. And unfortunately, the movie never really got a release after that. I, I couldn't find any details as to what happened. Uh, even in the commentary and the behind-the-scenes stuff that's on the Blu-ray, like there's nobody ever gives any details. They the filmmakers just refer to it as a bad deal or a bad distribution deal. But whatever happened, it caused the movie to basically be lost for about 25 years. Never got a theatrical release outside of those few festival screenings.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I, I tried really looking into that, and the best I, I could find, find was this. This guy Stuart Shapiro uh, was a distributor, and he was like a specialist in. Uh, music horror and cult films but one of the things he was a distributor for like back in the day was uh which i thought was relevant was the psychotronic man and um but uh he gave another it lost like, film that only like had one theatrical screening i think of, yeah so he was apparently terrible in his job but <laughs> he um but what was interesting about him is that uh besides that connection to us is that also um he, he gave it like a uh limited theatrical release uh in in 80 it said through International Harmony. Uh, but he also ran a video company called Harmony Vision. And he was the created uh, creator of the late night series Night Flight, which I've mentioned on this really? show before. Yeah. Huh. And so he created Night Flight. And, uh, but yeah, they, they, he, he gave it like that limited bit and it returned to King's Court apparently in like October of 1980. And then that was like the last time it was screened.
2: Yeah, and until 2004 or so, and Synapse Films basically rescued it. Synapse Films, uh, known for distributing uh, lesser-known horror movies and lost horror movies, things like that. They, they do a lot of really fun exploitation and cult movies. They discovered it. They released it. This film had been known throughout like horror the horror circuit because of the people involved because of what they went on to do later on so people knew of this movie but very few people had actually seen it until 2004 when synapse released their DVD and then 2018 i think it was acva the american genre film archive released it on blu-ray which is what i watched it on uh and it is it's really it's a really good copy i mean it's still a scratched up you know 16 millimeter movie so it's only going to look so good but it looks about as good as it could and they actually (laughs) speaking with the filmmakers and stuff they actually Acfa discovered that they had the only existing 35 millimeter print of the film in their archives because the the print that was used for the synapse dvd back in 2004 had been damaged over the years so they agfa ended up there they found out that they had the only existing print which is what ACFA does like I don't know if you guys are familiar with the America Genre Film Archive but they basically are digitizing these movies that might otherwise be lost forever to history like they're rescuing these lost usually movies that you've only heard of if you're like very deep into like exploitation movies and old cult movies sometimes giving their first ever like video release but right. they they digitize them so that they will last because film will eventually deteriorate. Yeah. so they they digitize them so that they'll be available for generations to come to watch which i think is really cool and i think they're they're doing really great work and that's uh, and so i highly recommend supporting them they they do some really fun sounding movies
1: yeah well i mean you sent you sent us the link for um where we could you know pick up a copy of 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 effects and i just took it as an opportunity to just browse and it's it's pretty wild, like some of the stuff they have. It's pretty, there's some pretty
2: it, wild movies on there. It
1: it kind of reminded me of like walking through the video aisles, you know, when I was a kid, of just seeing just these bonkers,
2: yeah, titles. Ac- and ACFA does great, like cover art and everything for them, yeah. so very yeah. eye catching.
0: It's really cool. Yeah, it's fun. So yeah. I'm glad they exist, and I'm glad that this movie was made. So I don't feel I want to feel like I'm just completely shitting on it. So I want to be clear. Like I mean, I'm. I appreciate that the movie is there. I watched it twice this week. But my thing is, it's like, that'll probably be the last time. Like, at least for a long, long time that I bother with it. Um, it just, it, it, it didn't do it for me in a whole. And I tried to watch it a second time because I knew that I would be disagreeing with one, perhaps both of you. Uh, and, uh, and so I was like, maybe, maybe maybe i'm just i was in the wrong place and uh i went back through it this morning and i was just still kind of like i don't know man sluggish some of the stuff just doesn't do it there's some really effective scenes in it um but you can definitely see i think the talent of
2: those involved
0: yeah i mean everybodys they were very they're
2: very limited on what they could do with such a small budget but you can still tell that they've got chops
0: you know yeah, I guess I guess I'm just like thinking to myself like nothing about it to me makes it be like this is the one that everybody has to see. It was undiscovered, and now we've no, got I mean, it. It'll be the greatest movie ever, or like a super cult favorite. I'm I like, mean, it's not that nah. kind of
2: movie, but for for people who are into the history of the genre, I think it's a good one to watch. I think it's a good one to to check out. I mean, it's pretty easily available as well. It's on several streaming services as of the time we're recording this, including Shudder, and I think it's on Tubi TV. It's on a few different places. So very, actually very easy to find now, which is ironic considering it was lost for a quarter of a century. So as far as the futures of all of those involved, you know, we already know about Savini. We already know where Savini went after this. We're gonna be talking about that for the next several weeks. Uh, Director Dusty Nelson, unfortunately, doesn't have a whole lot of credits after this. Like I went on his website, even he's got some done some commercial work and things like that. And I think he's still working within the industry, just not working on like TV or film. So you don't find a lot of credits, Uh, like on his IMDb. His only directing credits after this include uh, he did one episode of the George Romero created TV series uh, Tales from the Dark Side. He did two different ninja movies in 1987. (laughs) And he did a horror movie called Necromancer in 1988. And then he didn't do anything else until 2002, a movie called Inferno. And he doesn't have any credits past that time. So I don't know what he's doing these days. Uh, the other members of Imageworks teams, they had, had a slightly more prestigious careers. Uh, Pat Buba spent the majority of his career as an editor. He, he unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But he worked with George Romero on Knight Riders, on Creep Show. Day of the Dead, Monkey shines two evil eyes and the dark half, among other things. Including, he was one of the editors of Michael Mann's Heat. So, like, wow, had, yeah,
0: pretty pretty big career. Well, he became buddied up with Al Pacino. I was seeing and like, um, in like when Pacino's directorial debut, uh, Looking for Richard. He did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, his and final he did film Chinese before passing, Wild uh, Salome, I think Sa-
2: Salome was his last credit. I think that was twenty thirteen, and that was his last movie that he did before. Before he passed away, which is a you know, Pacino film, uh, John Harrison probably had the biggest career of all of them. He he worked on the Tales of the Dark Side TV show as well, directed like eight episodes of that one. Uh, then it went on to direct the Tales from the Dark Side movie, which was a, a pretty pretty fun uh, horror anthology film from
0: 1990, produced by Richard Rubenstein. If we haven't mentioned that, but
2: yeah, Rubenstein and and Romero. Yeah. So, uh, but he
0: mostly directed television.
2: Probably most well known for the Frank Herbert's uh, Dune miniseries from 2000 that came on. I think it was on the Sci-Fi Channel, but don't don't quote me on that. But he also directed three episodes of the new Creep Show TV series uh, that was released on Shudder last year. So he's still kind of working on Romero themed or Romero adjacent works even now. You know, which Tom Savini also directed an episode of that series. Uh, but as a composer, he did scores for Romero's Creep Show. He did uh, Day of the Dead. You know, so he still did a lot of work as a composer as well, and still is working to this day, as far as I'm
0: aware. He just had um, a mini series come out on Netflix. Well, I guess it's a few years ago now, but Residue was the name of it, and it was like that little, he directed or composed. Uh, that he
2: he wrote, he created oh, wow. and wrote it. Yeah. He also wrote the movie Dinosaur, the Disney movie from like the early 2000s. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Like CGI it was like all CGI dinosaur. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. He he okay. wrote.
2: He was one of the writers on that. So. Yeah. Yeah, so next week, so this this episode was kind of a little side quest, I guess you could say, nice. on the film. And it, uh, on, on this journey through Romero and Savini's careers. because like we said, Romero wasn't really involved with this other than sort of encouraging these guys to go make a movie. But it was, you know, another step in Savini's career. But next week, we're going back to an actual Romero-directed film and a film that was probably one of his most personal films and a screenplay that he had had for a few years, even prior to Dawn of the Dead and Martin, a movie that he'd been working on. And it was finally released in 1981. And it's a movie that I've actually been wanting to visit for years and I've never seen. So I'm finally going to sit down and watch it for this podcast. Uh, from 1981, it's a movie called Night Riders, which also, once again, stars as on-screen as an actor, Tom Savini himself. Nice. Yeah. Have you guys seen Night Riders? I've never
0: seen it. No. So none of us have seen it. Yeah. Heard of it? Heard of it?
2: But yeah, this no, will be never, interesting never because
0: I, I think Pat uh, uh, Buba, like you know, you, you mentioned it. He he edited. He's the editor, yeah. Romero. Yeah, that's the first time Romero gave up editing or like shared it. I think he, he ends up giving else, yeah. it up to him. <laughs> by day of the dead but uh so it's interesting to see is like you'll you'll see his evolving but did we I, I, I do want to say like i I really do like palato and uh joseph palato like i think he's a really good guy and, and i and i'm sorry if you said this but he just died like this this past year last year yeah last yeah. march and uh so we'll, we'll get to his like most famous role obviously is Captain Rhodes but yes uh, of course you know but he 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 was he's a really he's, he's a good actor I really like him and I was I ended up going down a rabbit hole of, of reading about him this time just because I was like it's cool seeing him up front and center here and uh you know he would like end up rounding out his career like doing like Harry Cooper from Night of the Living Dead on uh the the Origins movie that came out that Origins 3D movie Oh, did he? is he in that? Yeah, well, he he he. I mean, I think it's all computer animated, but yeah, he yeah, has yeah. the voice for Harry voice. Cooper. Yeah, wow. but he had a hit a really cool thing. A quote I saw because uh, he ended up. Uh, you know, I saw I started reading about he was Dean Martin in Pulp Fiction, like he yes, he played in the uh, Jack Rabbit Slims. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and he was telling the story in one of the interviews I saw where it, it happened because um, he was originally slated. Uh, God, I wish I could remember the name of the person whoever came up with uh, Dust 'til Dawn originally. Um, like, there was Rodriguez, was, but but it wasn't Rodriguez. I was really surprised by this. It was somebody else had it, and it was because of a script from Quentin Tarantino, and it was before Quentin Tarantino knew anyone. And they and you can find this online. They shot a teaser commercial thing for it, like a so somebody
2: watch. else that was going to direct it.
0: Yeah, somebody else was going to direct it and uh and i'm god i wish i could remember who who it was it's somebody you'd know and um they had it and they cast joseph Pilato as the george clooney character in it was one of the gecko brothers and and the trailer is of him playing that role like i mean it's just like him locked away like downstairs in the basement you know when the vampires are trying to get in and uh he was supposed to take that role and then um he tells a story about how like then reservoir dogs happened. And then uh and then that blew up and, you know, people wanted Quentin Tarantino and anything connected to Quentin Tarantino, and then that thing started blowing up and then he wasn't big enough to be a star there. So George Clooney uh became the star of that movie. And wow. he uh he ended up getting a role somehow through all of that, uh just as a nice gift as Dean Martin in Pulp Fiction. And, uh, he, you know, but he, he had this quote I was reading and it says, there's an old saying in Hollywood, an actor walks into a studio lot. He takes a left, he gets run over by craft services truck. Turns right. He bumps into a casting director who says, you're the guy we've been looking for. So, you know, <laughs> it could have gone a different direction.
2: <laughs> uh, that's fun. So, uh, yeah, yeah. He didn't have as big a career as he probably deserved, but we'll, we'll talk about that probably a little bit more come, day of the dead in a few weeks so i thought it was worth
0: mentioning since he is the likable person in all of this yes of course yeah. yes.
2: <laughs> man i just looked up this night of the night of the living dead thing you talked about it's only got a 3.9 on imdb so i'm not not terribly uh jazzed about about it but i might have to watch it because one it's only an hour long but two daniel this, harris is in it daniel harris and bill mosley and tony todd are all in it
0: Oh, yeah. nice.
2: oh, right. Yeah. And Tom Sizemore. It's got some it's got some good people involved. So, um, I don't know, maybe I'll watch it. Who knows? Maybe Yeah, we'll I
0: kept telling myself I'd watch it, but then you have to uh I don't know. You have to bring yourself to do it. So, <laughs> you have to watch it. Luckily <laughs> it's only an hour long, so that that might help. I don't know. I just found I guess whoever I thought. It's on Robert Rodriguez HD. Like you can find that trailer from Dust Till Dawn with Joe Pilato uh as seth gecko but the trailer was directed by robert kurtzman oh really wow. yeah wow <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so anyway man. i don't know maybe rodriguez was always tied to it somehow but uh it's interesting i'm sure we'll do an episode on that movie at some point down
2: the line and we'll talk about it well thank you guys for coming i think thanks we're done talking about this movie thanks That's for having
0: yeah. and, the coming uh, part yes Listen,
1: like, or both. Listen, I I always come on the podcast.
2: Oh, thank God. you, Todd, writer, comedian Todd Davis. If you want more, book now. If you want, if you want great content like that, twenty four hours a day, please follow Todd at Mister Todd A Davis on Twitter and Instagram. His Instagram is mostly pictures of his own face after he gets. After oh, after he gets a haircut or pictures of what he had for brunch this week
1: and my dog and max I'm, I'm, yeah. i mean honestly
2: max is the a plus content on exactly on exactly <laughs> uh, gary is at this is gary horn on all the places including letterboxd we're all on letterboxd we should say if you want to follow us i don't know how regularly you guys are using them. i think gary's keeping up pretty well yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've fallen behind. I
0: actually need to go and update some stuff. So I just called back up yesterday with anything I had forgotten.
2: Nice, nice. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop in all those same places. Follow the show at various accounts, <laughs> Cinema Shock, <laughs> Cinema underscore Shock on Twitter and Instagram, I believe. And then Cinema Shock Net on Facebook. Yeah. You can also find all of our links on, cin- on cinemashock.net or just in the show description on this episode. You can also find links on our website to where you can watch the movies we're talking about every week and et cetera, et cetera. Leave a, leave a review and all that good stuff. Did I forget hey. anything?
1: Have
0: oh. I forgotten anything? Um, yeah. I'm Matt. This is Gary Horn. Did you say that? I sure did. All right. You should listen to me more when we're talking. About I'm sorry. My her. wife is texting me right now that her car isn't starting and she's stuck. So I have. All to right. Well, go, go rescue <laughs> her. We're done. Until next
2: week. May the weeks of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. Oh, no, shit. Todd.
0: Yep. I hate it. So,
2: until, until you figure out
1: what I'm saying. Why do we have to? That's what it out? is. We all what? figured
0: out our own. Yeah, yeah
1: what? I figured out mine, motherfuckers.
0: That's uh, okay. bad. Though. Do I have
1: Do I have to write a piece about
2: why I say Johnny Johnny has the keys? If you could I mean, write a compelling argument, but I don't know why, how that's a send off at all. all. I mean, right. even from that movie, you could pick others.
0: Maybe we'll be back <sighs> next week with a better yeah. one, with or without Todd. <laughs> all right. <laughs>